0: Hello, this is Charles Reed Anderson, filling in for Bernard Leong, and this is the Analyze Asia podcast, where we aim to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. In today's podcast, we're going to take a look at the venture capital scene in Asia and beyond, and we're lucky enough to be joined by Mr. Chua Keelock, CEO of Vertex Venture Holdings and managing partner of Vertex Ventures, Southeast Asia and India. So Keelock, welcome to the show. Thank you. So before we delve into venture capital, why don't you tell us a bit about your background yourself, how your career started, and how you eventually got into venture capital?
1: Well, I guess I got into venture capital somehow by luck. Uh, you know, never thought about myself. Somehow will end up with venture capitalists. started off in 1985. I got a scholarship from a large company in Singapore, Conet Steel. It's a large steel company at that time in this part of the world. They wanted to diversify their uh, business and branch into technology, and decided to give some young people at that time I'm young, <coughs> to a uh, scholarship to Stanford to do a master's degree in engineering. So I went there to do an engineering degree, and uh, during my uh, summer time, this same firm, Cornett Steel, decided to start their own corporate venture arm and with an office in Silicon Valley, uh, Redwood City, at that time. And then, so during my summer, I went up to intern for them for three months and uh, sort of, you know, get excited about this whole industry and the venture capital activities. And uh, after I graduated, I uh, came home for a short period of time, and they sent me back to Silicon Valley to, uh, to work for in their Silicon Valley office for almost about three to four years. And that was the beginning of the golden age of U.S. Silicon Valley's uh, technology venture capital. So you get to see all these so-called, you know, legend like Tony Son or Van Rock, Don Valentine kind of Perkins at time, you know, all these very legendary venture capitalists, you have a chance to sort of, as a young kid, sitting in the room, watching how they assess and how they discuss issues. And then that was the beginning of my career in venture capital.
0: That's a pretty impressive story, because if you think about it, you were there at the Haiti when it was first starting out. The things that we all read about in books, you were actually on the ground at that time. So that's quite exciting. So. I imagine you must have gotten some life learnings or life lessons during that time. Did you ever pick up some words of wisdom from some of these people that you've applied throughout your career?
1: No, I think the commonality of all these great venture capitalists is I find that they all keep an open mind. They're all very knowledgeable what they're looking at. When they discuss topics of specific technology or sector, you can see that they clearly have spent time understanding the sector. So that's one thing that I, you know, since then I always tell myself, we, if we are investing in the knowledge business, we must be always knowledgeable both in terms of the business, the technology, or the people or whatever it is. Because you can't just give people a general comment and you know, buy low, sell high kind of uh, idea. You have to be more specific. And because after all, when the business of innovation and disruption, if whatever we are doing is new, people want some, you know, constructive idea. So that's something I, I learned from all this, the, you know, I guess great venture capitalists, yeah.
0: Okay, very good. One part I really liked about that is you also mentioned the people side of it. Sometimes it's very easy to do the technology side, and it's the people and the cultural change that can actually make it more complex or difficult to implement and impact the future success of those solutions.
1: Yeah, one of the reasons, as you probably know, one part of my career that which I went on, you know, I I took a few leaps. Uh, I went to start a company myself. Mm -hmm. I was an entrepreneur for a short period of time, uh, in 1997 to nineteen. 99, myself and a couple of guys started a voice over IP company before Skype. Mm-hmm. We, in fact, were the Skype before the Skype comedia ring. Uh, the idea at the time was to uh, dollar more than how do you allow people to make long distance calls through uh, PC to PC? I don't know if you're in Asia at the time. You know, Asia, all the telecom players are monopoly. You'll be making a phone call from Singapore to USA is $2 per minute. Mm. It's crazy kind of rate. I mean, today, can you imagine the kind of uh, price you're paying if you talk for an hour? People go broke, right? But you know that that was kind of kind of monopoly situation. So when we we saw the internet in 1995, a couple of us decided to come together, start a company, and uh, the lesson learned at that point in time as an entrepreneur is that very interesting It's all about people. VCs, of course, sit on the other side of this entrepreneurial story. You can better appreciate the struggle because you're working literally 24 by seven. And then you are every day trying to figure out, you know, where are the next challenges and how to solve the issues. And issues are coming up, you know, every hour, you need to prioritise them. And ultimately, it's down to the entrepreneur judgement. So one of the things that I like to also take away from my own experience is that so long the entrepreneur is doing his very best and he's trying very hard to, uh, to, to execute the plan, we must always be supportive and try to be helpful not try to, you know, second guess what they're trying to do, because we are not living in their environment on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that people is important for us, for Vertex especially.
0: Okay, very good. Well, that's a good lead-in to Vertex. So why don't we look a little bit now about your current roles? So can you give the audience um, a bit of overview of what about Vertex Holdings does and how it relates to Tamasic Holdings and what your current role involves?
1: Sure. Uh, Vertex, actually, the, today and what Vertex used to be is quite different. So I need to maybe give a bit of history so that you know, people get a bit of perspective. But some of the audience may have uh, heard about Vertex 30 years ago, so they may have a certain perspective than today. So maybe perhaps let's go back to history a bit. We started off in 30 years ago, 1988. We are one of the longest uh, operating venture firms in this part of the world. Originally as a corporate venture capital arm of a Singapore Technology Group, which is owned by Tamasic, and the idea at the time was that, you know, Singapore is in developing. There's a lot of companies like Singapore Technology needs to go uh, venture out to other countries to acquire technology through a corporate venture program. And that's why Vertex was established as a corporate venture arm. And did very well for a long period of time. Unfortunately, we hit the dot-com bubble in 2000-2001. And, uh, you know, uh, like anything of corporate venture, once you hit a big patch, you know, you first thing you go back to your core, which is the original ST engineering business, and you essentially hibernated the whole venture capital arm called Vertex. So Vertex was hibernated between 2001 to 2008, essentially doing nothing much, and was restructured and became a direct subsidiary of MASIC since that time. So for almost eight years, we did nothing much because we were essentially in the hibernation mode. And uh, somehow, interestingly, the, you know, the, in 2008, uh, Tomasik, we look at this whole venture capital scene and decided that they need to somehow get involved in the startup scene and decided to restart Vertex. And that's how I came in because they, they somehow knew about me, perhaps because they think that I'm a, a bit a uh, risk taker. So they came and talked to me and, and uh, decided that we should, you know, restart Vertex. And I joined late 2008, just before Lehman Brothers. In fact, I still remember the conversation. I had one of the senior person and uh, she asked me, why do I think that this is the right time to start a venture capital fund? I told her that um, venture capital is one thing that is why I find it's consistent. There's a cycle. And when the cycle is up, this way you should start the fund, not when you're down. And she said, oh, isn't that a bit risky? I said, no, when it's up, it was going to come down. So when you start the fund, uh, roughly around then, when it comes down, you'll be the only one with the real money and pick up all the company that invest at a decent valuation, and that fund will make a lot of money. And turns out that I did not plan on the Lehman Brothers. September 2008, Lehman Brothers happens, and then the whole market will collapse. And we just started our new Vertex fund with 100% capital from Damasek. That was 2008. And 2012, Damasek gave us a ton of money again. That was also the second fund that we started. But what is different today from the, that time, 2008, is that we transformed in 2014. Uh, under the leadership of some of the senior management in Damasek, they want us to take this further. How to transform this to truly to be a sustainable institution, that uh, you know we don't have to rely on a single investor called Temasek. So in 2014, 2015, um, all of this, we transform ourselves to a platform whereby Temasek no longer give 100% capital. They will give between 30 to perhaps 50% of capital. The remaining capital, we each individual partnership had to go and raise externally. So meaning. Today we have Vertex Venture Israel, Vertex Venture USA, Vertex Venture China, Vertex Venture Southeast Asia India, Vertex Venture Growth Fund and Vertex Healthcare Fund. These six partnerships, they have about 30-50% capital from Tamasia as an LP. The remaining money is raised by the GP themselves and the GP also themselves have to put their own capital at risk. And this is a more typical LP-GP structure of the venture capital and in my view it's a more sustainable business because previously after we restarted, to me it's a... It's a very risky structure because it's a single point of failure, which is me. I'm the so-called uh, managing partner, the whole group. Everybody is, of course, is uh, working very hard. Together we collaborative and, and we build consensus. But ultimately still boils down to one person, single person's judgment. And uh, that's a very risky model for venture capital. So in 2014, I saw the opportunity to transform the company. We agreed to create this so-called standard LPGP structure. And today, this is what we are. So essentially, Tomasi today is a major anchor investor of the group and the rest of the partnership below are separately organized. This is why you saw my titles. I'm also managing partner of Southeast Asia and India. And then I'm not managing partner of any other funds because those other funds I independently managed. Now, last point is the Vertex holding. So Vertex holding now today is a holding structure. So it holds the money that funded to all this separate partnership below. But in order for us to differentiate and to be able to create a better long-term value, we also create some resources up the Vertex ha- holding level. And this is why you see some two of my colleagues here. So as Bernice, they help in many of our social media, uh, you know, engagement. Cheryl helps a lot of the uh, PR activities uh, on the regards. And so these are the resources we build on the Vertex holding level that we try to help some of the partnerships, the team to, you know, take the brand, further than beyond just single country or single market uh, interest to be a global truly global player so ultimately our goal is that we believe uh, venture capital is a local business you need that local connection local connectivity local capability but it also is a global business you can't possibly invest in the best deal in singapore but you know that that this technology is not good enough to compete against the global player eventually so therefore we believe this is a Correct model. You connected each other through a global platform, but each of the partnerships are separately organized and incentivized to make sure they pick the best deal, but they are still aware of the global opportunity and the competition.
0: Okay, that sounds very good. It also sounds like it must be quite challenging to oversee that on a day to day basis. So, can you give us an idea? What is a typical day for you?
1: Well, I think each of the funds are independently managed, so Vertex Holding as my role as CEO it doesn't really do much thing other than making sure that we are continuing keeping the brand up there, and that's more of the holding level uh, activities. But for me, day to day, I spend a bit more time in Southeast Asia and India Fund as a managing partner, spend time with the portfolio, spend time with the managing partner or the younger partners, looking at the portfolio, talking about the thing, joining the board. So typical things for me is, you know, I start early usually, you know, 7am, you know, and I will get in quiet time, nobody sort of, you know, disturb me so can read all the necessary stuff. And, you know, like anybody else, we read all the possible articles in social media, follow some of the tweets and figure out what things people are talking about, in you know, globally. And then at you know, 9 o'clock, everybody start coming in, There will be meeting after meetings you know, like this, and then, you know, the rest of the day will be just meetings after and discussion.
0: Okay, so it keeps you quite busy from 7 a.m. through the course of the day. Yeah,
1: yeah, yes. Okay.
0: Right. Doesn't it make everybody nervous that you're in before them for a couple of hours? <laughs> Does that mean they arrive and they have 20 emails from you waiting at their desk already?
1: Uh, yeah, I think I to, sometimes they get nervous about it. But I think it's okay. I mean, some of them will discover that this is what I do, and then mm-hmm. if they need that, something important to discuss, they will come in early. Uh, so sometimes 7.30 and then we have a discussion first because nobody is you know, around. Right? So, because once everybody's in, you know, there's a lot of people discussions that you know happening and then you'll be running between meetings running between calls so a lot of times the rest of the you know you won't have time to spend time talking about uh, issues
0: So what I also found interesting is that you have some of your funds are vertically focused and then some of them also look at more countries or regions so I found you have health in that you're mentioning um, and then some of them are more Southeast Asia and India is this going to be like a strategy you think that makes sense going forward? Is it we find something really interesting in healthcare, so we're going to back that? And then, what stages do you actually get involved with these funds? Is it early stage, mid stage, late stage?
1: No, I think generally for us, information technology or TMT sector is more country or regional focus. So that, that's why we have Vertex Venture Israel, Vertex Venture USA, Vertex Venture China, or Vertex Venture Southeast Asia. These are primarily focused on IT sector. Uh, the healthcare is uh, more global in nature because we discovered is you know healthcare is one of those sectors whereby it's difficult to have a technology invest is in, only for a single market. Let's say you know Japan. Eventually you will have to get a product out from the market to globally address. So when you invest in this technology a healthcare sector, which is only for single market, you never really work because eventually competition will sort of kills you. So healthcare is global in nature, and the last one is growth fund. Growth Fund, by nature, is you have to be looking for the best growth opportunity, but they're not single-country focus. Yeah.
0: Okay, very good. Now, when you start looking at things to invest in, are there any certain traits or attributes that you look for in the startups or maybe in the founders?
1: I guess there the are a couple of key things. first important thing is we're trying to understand where is the business and where is the disruption, where is the innovation. So that's the very first thing we're always trying to get our hands around. So when the founder comes up with a new idea and everything, we're trying to understand what are you trying to solve here. So that's the first thing, start with the idea. So the idea it really compelling or the idea is just, you know, one of those me too, uh, no, 10,000 other guys are doing the same thing. So that's the first thing that we do. Then second thing is, uh, idea can be good, solution must be very compelling, how big is the market? Because if the market is only about $10 million large, that's not good enough, right? Uh, it can be 100% the market is only $10 million worth. So how large is this thing you're trying to solve? So that's total addressable market. Last but not least, is, of course, we mentioned its founder. People is very important for us because ultimately it's all about execution. Because market will change, technology will change, competition will change. So we will have to have a bunch of people who are always willing to, to adapt and you know uh, learn and somehow you know, move with time. And I think this is very important. In fact, I always tell the entrepreneur, which I'm on the board of, I say, look, you know, if you are in a, truly in a business that is very disruptive and innovative, none of us have seen it before including you and me. But you have to always keep an open mind and you must also let, listen carefully to some of the suggestions that we are saying. Not that all are right, not all are wrong, but some of them are probably perhaps applicable. So there's some things that we find that on a the very important traits for the entrepreneurs they must be willing to listen. Not they have to follow. Listening and then following instructions are two different things. You can listen to everything we say. You can take none of them, which is fine, so long you have a good reason to do it. But if you don't if you refuse to listen to any other thing, that's a problem, and that's something that we always tell them to: you must keep an open mind, you must listen carefully, and then after, ultimately, everything we say is rubbish, so be it. But if 50% of the things we say is useful, you must deal with it. Yeah.
0: I think that's a very interesting perspective because if you think about it, it would be great if it was just a linear process where I come up with an idea and I'm going to become a unicorn. It isn't. There's constant changes, there's market dynamics, there's black swans that can come in technology innovations that impact it so I think it's very it's a very good piece of information I think always think about that keep an open mind on these and the other part that you mentioned that I really like is it's got to start with what problem does it solve there is quite a few that come out now and it's technology for technology's sake we're connecting something because we can not because it delivers business value or solves a business problem so um, I I like those two points on that one Okay, so let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into your portfolio. Sure. Um, what are the ones that you see out there right now in your portfolio where you're investing that you think are really interesting? It doesn't have to be the biggest. It could just be something you find interesting because of the technology, its potential impact on business or society.
1: Yeah, I think a couple of them. I mean, I'm sure you know that we are the initial investor of Grab, so we're still very proud of the company, although we, we sold a lot of the shares, but you know, we're still very proud about how it truly truly has transformed and solved the transportation issue in in Singapore, I'm sure you live in here, you know. That's I how was, we got here this morning. Yeah, five years ago, you know, uh, it's just completely disaster. You know, all of us want to call a cab. We call a number. We will wait for the half an hour, and then nothing so, showed up. And we're trying to heal a cab on the road. They, they will tell you that they're having you know, night shift or day shift, whatever shift they're on. It's impossible to get a cab. But fast forward today, this is not an issue anymore in this part of the world. So this is very, you know, for us, it's very rewarding. Know that we truly invest in a company. We solve a, a pain points for everybody. And that's something that we've done. we have still Grab. So th- looking ahead, some of our younger portfolio in this part of the world, Southeast Asia, I guess a couple of them. The one of them is issues in India. We invest in this company, doing online, offline, fresh meat, grocery e-commerce company with the growing middle class in India. People want access to a hygienic product, you know, f- fresh meat. And then gone other days, people buy those, you know, meat or, or food that, you know, probably are contaminated. So people want to have access to that. So in order to do this, you must be have a much better e-commerce system, whereby you integrate the offline supplier with online system. So this is a company which I think is growing very well, now about six or seven cities and growing at a very rapid rate. Another company that in Singapore, which is started out by a couple of more experienced guys, is Com- a company called Validus. This is a so-called small and medium enterprise marketplace lending platform. You know this part of the world, Southeast Asia, 60% of economies are small and medium enterprise. SME never able to borrow money from the bank even though they are decent industries. And because the fact is basically SME by nature are small. And because they are small, they probably are not so sophisticated in their financial reporting system. And in some internal market, they are not required to even submit audited financial so as a result of this, when you go to borrow money from the bank, b- bank, unless you mortgage your whole house and your whole you know, whatever you own, they're not gonna lend you a single dime. So a lot of SMEs in this part of the world are not able to get capital to grow their business. So what valid is trying to solve, is trying to apply the you know, machine learning AI technology, using data as a basis. And how do I be able to access a company without you know, necessarily looking at only financial loan? How do I access? Let's say a paint supplier of a shipyard company. Uh, how do I know this major supplier or paint to the shipyard is a good uh, SME? i will not basis on this because you probably maybe supply maximum thirty, 000, forty thousand dollars per month to them. That's not a lot of money, and uh, but they, they need working capital because you know when you commit to a project, you need to buy the, the stuff beforehand. So these are the things that I think Validus is able to do this. So they, they now become number one in Singapore. You know with a huge volume. And then they just grew in the, uh, Indonesia recently and they're just about to start Vietnam very soon. And next year, first quarter, they will start in Thailand. And they will gradually they'll start a few other Southeast Asia countries. And uh, the goal is to become the largest SME lending marketplace in this part of the world. So that's a second company. Last company, I guess I mentioned, is this company called Instarim. They will be rebranded uh, soon. They started off by the Kaprop interesting uh, gentleman. Originally, the idea was very much, I guess, copying the idea of wise in the UK. The idea is very simply that you know, if you want to send money from uh, London to Croatia, uh, started by a bunch of Croatians uh, for transfer-wise, there's no need to send money across the banking network. Because while you're sending money from London to Croatia, there'll be somebody trying to send money from Croatia to London. If there's a way for you to efficiently net off this money locally, the monies are being delivered without cross the so-called banking network in a, some sense. So they took this idea and then implemented it in emerging market because they believe emerging market's uh, requirements went more because emerging markets similarly needs to have this access of this cross-border payment and cross-border remittance. So they built up the network. Now they have uh, over 55, 56 countries, mostly emerging countries. Of course, uh, they also access the US and Europe and so on and so forth. And they grew very rapidly. Now they are on a run rate of what, 3 billion US, annualized run rate remittance volume and then growing very fast. I mean, the founder is targeting to achieve 5 billion at the end of the year. And I think this will be us the largest in this part of the world.
0: Well, it's some exciting companies there. So. Thank you. so the next question is, if you look at the market right now, especially in Southeast Asia, and um, we've seen an influx of capital coming in, every VC has an office here, which means while people, yes, they always need funding, it becomes even more competitive for you as well. So when you see, when you go out and talk to portfolio companies or potential companies you'd like to invest in, how do you sell Vertex? So, what are the, like, your key differentiators that you bring to the table, whether it's your network or your contacts across the industry?
1: I think a couple of things. I think first thing is that uh, generally what we tell entrepreneurs to talk to our entrepreneurs. So, that's one thing we find is very efficient. The entrepreneurs we have worked with they have the best understanding of what is our culture, how is our, how is our behavior as our investors after we invested. So generally, when we try to you know, work with some entrepreneur, we will ask them to talk to some of our existing portfolio and have a one-to-one conversation and come out to tell us what they think about us. And generally, that is the best way for us to access whether or not truly we deliver the value. So generally, the entrepreneur that we have, they always point out a few things that we do very well. First, that we contribute a lot to their so-called business development. We will open doors. Um, This part of the world is usually not difficult for us. Maximum two degrees of separation. You know, you want to know Mr. X, we may not know Mr. X, but we'll know Mr. Y who know Mr. X, then we'll get to Mr. X quite quickly. But most of the time, we have one degree of separation. We know the person directly. We will be able to open the door quite quickly. And that helps because a lot of times, you know, entrepreneurs trying to build a business, you know, you don't want to start from the lowest possible rank and work work way up to the top level decision maker. You want to start from the top and uh, your product is good and they ought to justify the entry. So one part that a lot of entrepreneurs always say is we are very good in opening doors and the business development activities. Second part that we are very good is we also very good in helping entrepreneurs to build talent because we ultimately believe it is ultimately a people business. You can have a great CEO, great CTO, and whatever it is, you need to have a team, right? So sometimes they will have gaps. And because, like you know, we are in the business of people, business, We, we know a lot of people. And we also have a full-time recruiter in-house and will help these recruitments so a lot of our entrepreneurs in initial days they always maximize this capability from us in fact grab you know in the initial days we always see anthony in our office very regularly because he was interviewing people deciding a lot of like hiring initially and that's something that we do quite well and we try to help the entrepreneur to find the right candidates and then ultimately it's their decision they decide who they want and then we find the best possible candidate for them and he or she will decide on that again. The third is probably also the most important part of it, and it's fundraising. In order to build a business, you need to raise a lot of money. And uh, that part of business is always important. So we always help the entrepreneur in some sense, either by opening the right doors or making the right call or making the right referral, or sometimes uh, fine-tune their pitch. Because sometimes, you know, the entrepreneurs... They know the business so well, and they just forgot that, you know, investors look at things very differently, and you need to keep some points specific to their so-called focus so that they understand what you're trying to get at. Otherwise, you know, you were lost in the whole analysis. So these are the, some of the things that we do quite a bit for entrepreneurs. Yeah.
0: Okay, very good. Now, when you oversee Southeast Asia and India, that's a pretty massive market because you're looking at close to 2 billion people across those countries. Yeah. So it's quite a large area, and also it's at varying degrees of technology proficiency. So some of them are very well advanced, some of them are just catching up. How do you even break that down, I and mean, where do you think you know, some of the more interesting investment opportunities are, or what challenges do you face, and can you give us some insights into this broad region that you cover?
1: So for us, we actually have a lot of people. We have about 12 of us. So now we're adding more, so we probably get to 15, 16 very quickly. First of all, you need to have a lot of local capabilities to find the right companies and the network and to find the right deal. So this is a first start, starting point. The second part is because we have a lot of us, we, are, we tend to divide ourselves into the different focus. So some people focus only on social media related to activities. Some people only focus on commerce related activities, some fintech or enterprise, whatever that is. So each of us somehow gravitate towards a sector of interest and we, we try to read up and try to be knowledgeable in that industries and be able to know which are the most important deals in that in that sector. So that's something we do quite well. In each on the market, we generally know what, what are the so-called interesting ideas that are coming out. And the next thing is then, that ultimately, is to pick the right one. Because if the idea is of any good, there ought to be a couple of more guys trying to do the same thing. So ultimately, you will have four or five ideas that you can pick from. And it boils down to people, boils down to the technology they're trying to build, and how they're approaching it. And, of course, the you know, entrepreneur plays a key role in that decision,
0: ultimately. Well, there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, any challenges you see? I mean, do you see, like, is it government regulation? Is it a skill shortage? I think there was an article I saw this morning saying that in Vietnam, they have demand for 350,000 IT workers, and they are actually going to have a shortfall of about 70 to 90,000. So is there any challenges you see that will maybe limit some of the opportunities in the near term or things that we should be looking to address to make sure it's successful three to five years from now?
1: Yeah, of course, uh, in this part of the world, and you mentioned the part about regulation. There's yeah. always a concern for us. And uh, I think generally Southeast Asia, the past, and India, the past, I guess, past couple of years, they have been quite entrepreneurial or startup friendly. So therefore, uh, I think most country and regions have been not overly regulated uh, in the short term. But this is always a concern because in order for us to be successful, we need to have a country whereby the regulations are not excessive. So today, I think we are fine, but you know, never know, this part of the world are uh, very paternalistic in, in nature, the, the government uh, generally wants to do the right thing for the people, but sometimes they, they overdo it, and then when they overdo it, it tends to overregulate. Uh, so that's the, the, always a challenge we, in our view, and uh, so that's something we always have you know, to be mindful of. It. But in terms of talent, I think this is something that is uh, unavoidable. In any industries, whereby when it, there's a growth that's very, very fast, you always short of talent. Short of talent in terms of basic skills, short of talent in terms of more advanced skills. I even, you know, take the example of Grab. I mean, when we were scaling up very quickly, very quickly we discovered knowledge that we know that we have built over here is limiting our, our growth. And eventually, uh, you know, Anthony had to go overseas and to find people who have this skill set, who have built a large system, who know how to build systems that can scale indefinitely. So those are the things that you have to acquire from other markets. But when you get rich the size, you of course, you can afford to do that eventually. So when initially the, there'll be some more basic skill that's lacking, and that everybody's competing for their basic skill. And then eventually when the company is scaling much bigger, you will have to compete against Google, compete with Amazon for the much, much uh, advanced technology and skills. And that is a different playing field.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because I was just at an event where there was four VCs from Silicon Valley speaking in Taipei. And what they were all saying is how there's a skill shortage in Silicon Valley. You can get a really bad engineer, but it's still going to cost you 400,000. Yep. So what they've already been doing is going to Austin, going to Chicago, going to Boston to try and branch out. And they're running out of ideas. And what a lot of them are saying is they're going to start looking more at Asia as we're to find this now, because you can get high quality engineers, good English proficiency at a much lower rate. So I think it's funny that we're talking about a developing market out here where we're saying oh, it's, there's a skill shortage the people in Silicon Valley, they're clamoring out saying, we've got a skill shortage. We can't find it as well.
1: I think Silicon Valley is slightly different because Silicon Valley, by nature, has always had shortage. But I think the past couple of years, they're compounded by immigration policy. So that has forced a lot of good skilled people not able to get the correct immigration visa. And a lot of these guys are coming back to Southeast Asia or China. And, and we are getting that benefit. Some of these very skilled people are coming back, not because of You know, anything else, somehow they cannot get a visa, they're returning. So I think the Silicon Valley problems are more serious, I think. Mm -hmm. In this part of the world, of course, we always have this problem. Nevertheless, we are getting the benefit of the so-called U.S. uh, immigration policy. And if this continues, I think Silicon Valley is going to be a lot more challenging going forward.
0: What's also exciting is they might not come back initially because of the opportunity. But as these markets grow, especially what we saw with China, people are coming back and making a lot of money there. And I think you know India could be one of those next ones where it's going to be ready to skyrocket because you're looking at over a billion population, plenty of room for improvement because there's a lot of problems that need to be solved, like you are mentioning with one of your investment companies there. Yeah.
1: No, I think if you remember in the 1980s, I don't know, we were active in Asia. The four dragons, right? Taiwan, uh, Korea, Singapore, and uh, Hong Kong, I think, mean, yeah, the four dragons, right? Of which Taiwan and Korea are the one who benefiting for the so-called returnees. So their time was a semiconductor time, and a lot of the semiconductor initiatives in Silicon Valleys are the Koreans and the, and the Taiwanese who went to the U.S. to study. And then when the, the, their own home market was booming, they all returned home to start their own Silicon Valley equivalent. And those countries we well, saw all accelerated initially. And China even in uh, in 2000, when initial phase of China. In you know, developments, a lot of Chinese were returning to China to, to be so called returnees and they use have uh, this terminology for them calling them the sea turtle, right? But because the Chinese would sound the same, essentially we returnees back to China. And then initially uh, China started a company, buy two walls, are all these returnees, other uh, the returnees were coming back. So I think the, the returnees' wave is important to drive a lot of innovation because they have the benefit of developed countries are uh, seeing how advanced country develops and technology. When they return to a country where emerging, they are able to adopt this one faster and then you know, they bring the, the technology curve, uh, up faster.
0: I do spend a lot of time in Seoul and in Taipei and you, you see a lot more of them now especially, and especially in everything related to venture capital. So now let's take a look at something else. Like, What we hear a lot in the press is that there's a lack of exits in India and Southeast Asia. Do you think that deters the market opportunity for venture capital to thrive? Or is it just a matter of time? Is it more of a maturing thing?
1: Yeah, I think today this is a problem. There's not a lot of exit, real exit. So a lot of people have a mark to market or what we call total portfolio values. So that is short term. I think that's a concern for investors uh, because in the short term, unless you can create exit, ultimately, you know, you can give me a portfolio value of a billion dollar, but then it is paper money is useless. You know, you need to translate that to a real cash return. So I think that short term, this is a concern. In this part of the world, there's no yet to have a lot of consistent, proven exit story yet. I think it's going to start off over time. But ultimately, the exit market is not here. The exit market is still in New York, and uh, you know uh, Hong Kong. This is still in the natural market for everybody. Uh, you know, the, I think people is not going to consider Singapore market or Indonesia market or you know India market as the exit market for IT or healthcare company. You still have to go to the more bigger and sophisticated market market to get the correct value for your company. So I think this is a concern, but I think uh, over time this will solve itself when companies uh, you know, find value and build over time. Yeah.
0: But what we also see is there is a lot of people starting funds here and throwing money into Southeast Asia. So do you think there's any risk of maybe overheating the market where there's too much dry powder, there's just overinvestment and therefore the value of a single idea goes up from a million to three million to four million? Yeah.
1: No, I think clearly today there's a bit of a uh, hype going on in this part of the world because you know everybody and I like it not, the investors, the global investors are looking for a better return. They are aware of US, you know, competitions and talent shortage. They are aware of China's short-term challenges The trade war, putting some damper to their whole industries. So now they have to look for alternative, right? Alternative is clearly now back to Southeast Asia India. So a lot of people are here. You're right, the competition is quite fierce. But I always tell my younger colleagues that you must remember, this is a long-term business, you know. We must always invest in the correct value not low value right? correct value you know because we have to recognize our entrepreneurs you know always view the business to be a lot more valuable than us that's a given you know if the entrepreneur doesn't view his business more valuable than what we think it is something wrong with the entrepreneur because if we think that the company is worth 10 million the guy's done his company is worth 5 something's really wrong with the entrepreneur right so but if the, the guy thinks it's 20 million that's okay the point is ultimately how to get him to understand that you know what is the fair value that both sides can accept and that's something that we always trying to encourage, you know, entrepreneurs to look at it and not trying to say that we're not trying to invest cheap. I always try to you know, I'm not trying to take advantage of you. In fact, we always trying to make sure that we don't dilute entrepreneurs too fast. We always trying to make sure that they have hold a meaningful stake in the company. And sometimes we even many of our companies we even force the board to issue a lot of options to the key entrepreneur, you know, at every round. We had one VC came and tell us, This is very strange. We say, Why is this strange? you know, to us it's Ultimately it's about people, business, right? These guys are the key people. Why should I be diluting them so fast? And what's the problem with lighting them, making sure that they become hugely rewarded for their success? And then in between we are riding with them, what's wrong with that? I mean, okay, we get diluted ten percent more. Not, not gonna make a lot of difference. I mean, instead of making two hundred million million dollars, you make hundred eighty million, is that a lot of difference? I mean to me it's not a lot of difference. But if you do not have their incentive properly aligned, you may not make the hundred eighty million, you make zero people tend to compare that 20 million forget about it, actually it's comparing 180 million to zero so when we have this kind of issues we're trying to talk to the point and do get them to understand it
0: okay very good final question on venture capital how do you think it's going to evolve there's a lot of crazy things going on in the world right now what do you think over the next few years for venture capital and maybe venture capital in singapore and southeast asia
1: i think the southeast asia and singapore especially i think the Things is a lot much better. You know, I'm, I'm sure you know about 10, well now it's 2019, about 10 years ago, 2010, you look at the Southeast Asia venture capital, it's less than 100 million, 150 million US in total venture capital activities. I think last year it's about, about 7 billion or 7.5 billion US. So it's hugely improved, right? So I think the trend is correct. You know, there are a lot more ideas, a lot of, more things are happening. But however, I think we're going to hit some speed bump because we have been all up for nine years. I think at some point in time, you know, some people is going to realise that uh, somehow the valuation is excessive, uh, whichever that is. Some of the some companies are going to run out of paid rooms, they're going to not be able to raise money and then hit much higher valuation. We're going to hit some speed bump and people are going to lose confidence, so a lot of this kind of uh, so-called uh, short-term pay is going to run away. But for us, Vertex, we're a long-term player. So we're good time, bad time, we we'll always be here. So we think that uh, what is ahead of us is, if we look ahead five, 10 years, it's, it's going to be very exciting for us. But in the short term, we, we see that there's going to be a bit of speed bump and a bit of hit wins. We're going to have some bit of, you know, bit of challenges, which is good. In any industries, I always believe, if any industry worth doing, there had to be a competition. There had to be a bit of bubble and then there has to be a bit of down cycle. If there's no volatility in the industry, there's no point to, to bother, right? So, but so long the volatility is on the trend up, we are fine. If the volatility is on trend down, then we're in trouble, right? So I think for us, we are in the next couple of years, is on a trend upwards, and it could be some volatility, and then we just have to ride through the volatility and become, you know, survive this whole cycle.
0: And in the scheme of things, if you look at it, when there is challenges it also creates opportunities on the other side yep. if there is headwinds coming and there's going to be a downturn in the economy then solutions that actually focus more on cost savings versus driving new markets might be safer but so there is always the opposite side for every challenge there's opportunities that will be generated out of it yep. okay so now on a personal note can you recommend a book or movie or podcast that's recently had an impact on either your business or personal life
1: no i think there's a book by David dalio He wrote a book called principles I think that book is very interesting, especially in the business that we are in. I was quite intrigued at how he always thinks out of the box, how he's trying to always try to stay there again, think differently and do things differently. And that, you know that's why he was so successful over time. Well, then one more book that I read many years ago, which I always tell the people who want to be a venture capitalist. I always ask them to read this book called Start With Why. That was a very interesting book because he went to examine some of the great companies and how they have failed. And I thought that was so interesting because, uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, startup company when they started off, the entrepreneurs have a reason and why they're doing it. Eventually, why become what and what become how. And then eventually they forgot the why. And they will become just a company they want to do to make products uh, and, and understand it. So if you look at all this, Many of the companies in the you know that we are familiar with today are essentially you know, evolve themselves from a why to a how company, and eventually they will lose it and they will become you know just nobody. So that, that that's what you know. This is the second book that the people should read.
0: That'll be a good one for a lot of the startups who are listening because yep. they have to make sure they always remember their why and don't ever forget about it. Yep. Okay. So finally, how can the audience find you or Vertex Holdings? What is their social media sites or website?
1: Yeah, there's a website. You can go to vertexventures.com, Southeast Asia, India, or go to Vertex Holdings. Also, they can find my email address.
0: Okay. Gilak, thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. This has been Charles Reed Anderson, and this is the Analyze Asia podcast. See you next time.